October 10th, 2017, Cuba, Trinidad. During the game, it just seemed like everything was going wrong for us and right for them. The final whistle sounds on a shocking loss. Freakish goes, okay, something strange is happening. A generation of American soccer stars wanders the soggy field in a daze. It was a very dark time in, in U.S. soccer's history. Disbelief on their faces. You know, I can't even talk about it. I'm still, you know, it's tough to, to speak about. Realizing that something that had become a given, playing in the World Cup, was now gone. Complacency, I think. I think that's the number one thing. Just we, we thought that we were owed it. The unforgettable image from that night is a 19-year-old Christian Pulisic kneeling on the ground, jersey pulled over his face, shielding his tears. I mean, it was one of the toughest days of my life. I'll never forget it. Then, four and a half years later, Pulisic emerges from a champagne-soaked locker room in San Jose, Costa Rica, redeemed. The U.S. was going back to the World Cup. I don't know. This is, this is where I've always wanted to be, and I just, right now, I'm just... Emotions are a bit crazy right now. Since that night in Trinidad, the U.S. men's national team has gone from utter disappointment to the verge of a possible golden generation. We have one mission, is to go to the World Cup and to win. I'm Paul Tenorio. And I'm Sam Stasekul. And over the next five episodes, we'll examine that journey. From Pulisic's role in opening the door for this generation. I mean, he's a trailblazer in the fact that he's played for a big, big club at a young age. When you're getting transferred to Chelsea for 60 million plus, that's big news anywhere. To the biggest games and moments along the ride. I remember after that El Salvador game, just thinking to myself, man, like, this is going to be a grind. The merits of the Golden Generation label. I think it's a disrespect to say that they're the best team when they're all 23 and younger. You put our 2010-2014 team, I think we, we stack up very well. And what exactly we should expect from this team in Qatar. You know, I've heard people talk about, oh, you know, this is a, a dry run for 2026. No, they need to perform. This is From Cuba to Qatar, remaking the U.S. men's national team. The longer history of the USMNT still very much influences the national team today. It also provides lessons that may help understand what this team will take on in Qatar. Paul, it's easy to forget for newer fans of the national team, or really for most fans of the national team, that for 40 years, the U.S. men didn't even play in a World Cup. Between 1950 and 1990, the U.S. men's national team did not qualify for a World Cup. It was a ragtag team of college players that started to build the foundation for what we see today. First by qualifying for the 1990 World Cup, where they were overmatched but fought hard against some top-tier European opposition, but then of course taking a huge leap at home when the World Cup came to the U.S. for the first time in 1994. Moments ago in the Pontiac Silverdome, as the U.S. team took the field as the host nation for the world's biggest sports event, the World Cup. That team shocked a favored Colombia and got out of their group on home soil. Just remember, I started in 88, 89. There wasn't much investment in in soccer. Marcelo Balboa played in the 1990, 94, and 98 World Cups and remembers the battle to earn respect for American soccer players, one that this recent generation may finally be starting to win. We're a bunch of young kids who they picked out of college to try to qualify for the 90 World Cup. Uh, We surprised the crap out of everybody by qualifying, but there wasn't much there. I mean, it was 
whatever we could get. Sam, that 1994 team especially completely and forever altered the landscape of the sport in this country. A condition of hosting the 1994 World Cup, of course, was that the U.S. had to found its own professional soccer league, which became Major League Soccer. Started play in 1996. Totally different era in American soccer. And starting tonight, the MLS is going to prove just how dramatic a difference it's going to be. When you talk to people like Marcelo Balboa or others who are part of that team, what stands out is that everything was starting from ground zero. I mean, they weren't making much money. They had nowhere to play professionally outside of indoor soccer in this country. The national team games were played at college stadiums in front of a, a few hundred fans. It was not just a different landscape. It was a totally different world that that era of soccer players lived in from the team that you and I have covered over the last four years. Many of the players with that national team in 1994 didn't even play on club teams in the build up to that tournament. They just trained with the national team in preparation for the World Cup. And that sort of speaks to, to the massive, massive head start or lack thereof that the U.S. had in soccer as late as 25 years ago. They didn't have a league to play in. MLS, of course, changed a lot of things. They gave these guys an easier environment to break into. It made it more professional. But even back then, in the early days of that league, the changing room is a trailer. The practice field is a high school or an elementary school for some of these squats. It wasn't like it was glitz and glamour. We sacrificed and we grinded and we played through pulled muscles. I played with a torn MCL, sacrificing our bodies and our time, and we knew that we, we, we enjoyed our careers, but we knew we weren't gonna reap the benefits of what soccer was going to bring in 20 years, which is okay. I think we're all okay with that. Balboa is talking about playing through torn MCLs and pulled muscles. It's a matter of survival. They're eking out livings on 10, 15, $20,000 a year. It was not a lucrative profession, and it was something that was very much a labor of love. That, of course, had some negative side effects, though, Paul. Mostly it was that American soccer players weren't really taken seriously around the world. There were a few exceptions, of course, that came out of that 1994 team. Tab Ramos probably being the most prominent one. Works it over to Ramos. He shoots. He scores. Tab Ramos, the feed from Ian Hennessy. The Metro Stars are on the scoreboard. And we started to see players like John Harks go overseas, Alexi Lalas. Uh, Marcelo Balboa was playing in Mexico, but this was very much a battle, not just to prove themselves within the team or to try to keep alive a professional league in this country, but it was to prove that soccer could make it in this country at all. You have to remember the history of the sport in this country included the NASL, which was founded to great acclaim and had these huge players coming, Johan Cruyff and Pelé. The return of Pelé has attracted worldwide interest and given professional soccer in the U.S. a king-size shot in the arm. And then it folded. The professional scene in the United States became largely indoor soccer or leagues that would pop up for a year or two and then go away. And so these players were willing to take less money and to do it the way that they did in those early days of MLS to try to give the sport a real foothold in the country. And it would eventually take place. But I think that held back in some ways the development of the national team, at least over the next four years. And, and this U.S. team that, that did so well in 1994 went to the World Cup in 1998 and finished dead last. And it felt like any progress that had been made was maybe slipping away. That started to change over the next cycle when Bruce Arena, who was the most successful coach in Major League Soccer, who had coached DC United to multiple MLS Cups in the early days, took over the national team program and started to institute some changes, some notable changes. 
You know, I think Bruce did a really good job when he took over in 99 of just changing the whole dynamic of how or what the U.S. national team was. Greg Berhalter, who's the current head coach, he lived those changes. He was part of that World Cup team in 2002, and he talked about with us how Arena changed things when he took over. You know, I remember a small thing, but we used to stay in really nice hotels. And then he's when he came in, the hotel quality went down. He says, you guys want to stay in nice hotels, you got to earn it. And it, it was it basically put everyone on notice that anything that we got, we were going to have to earn. And I think that set a, a nice tone. Sam, that 2002 team would go on to change the paradigm for American soccer. 1994 was big. It helped to launch a professional soccer league. It popularized the sport in ways it had never done before. But it was at home. 2002 showed something different. The U.S. went into that tournament in Korea, Japan with low expectations following that miserable performance in 1998. But they had a good, cohesive group. It was a really harmonious group. Everyone kind of got got along. Everyone was, you know, had, you know, very similar goals and, and you know, related to each other really well. So the group ended up being really good. And then what you, you, then you add a couple X factors to the group, like... Landon and Demarcus, who weren't really part of any of the qualifying, but then came after and gave the group a ton of quality and a, a ton of this youthfulness and, and energy and everything. So overall, it was a, a really good mix of players. Burhalter is talking, of course, about Landon Donovan and Demarcus Beasley, a pair of very young players who came in and starred for the U.S. at that tournament as they made a really surprising run to the quarterfinals. Paul, I think for people of a certain age, I would put both of us in that age bracket. This tournament was the start of, of really, uh, uh, it was a soccer awakening. I know it was for me. I remember I was 11, 12 years old, sitting at home in South Florida, and my younger brother and I would wake up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. to watch the U.S. We didn't have much knowledge of the soccer scene worldwide, but we knew the U.S. wasn't favored against Luis Figo in Portugal. And that first game, they come in, and they pull off this amazing win. Here's Sammy. The Americans here, what a start for them, and this is number three, Brian McBride. 3-2 to take a couple early lead with a couple of goals and hang on for a result. It was incredible, and it, it kind of started something in me. I think it probably started something in you as well, and it set the tone for that tournament for a team that was able to surprise a lot of people at home in the U.S. and around the world, too. Well, I think what it did was it created belief. For those of us who already love the sport, but for a generation of people who hadn't really been paying attention to soccer before, the idea of American soccer players was that this country was so far behind the rest of the world, that getting out of the group in 1994 was a fluke, it was down to home field advantage, and that the U.S. men were never really going to be competitive in the sport. To make a run to the quarterfinals, to have those signature wins that they did over Portugal, over Mexico, the, the most famous Dos Acero, of course, was, was there at the World Cup in 2002. And then to take Germany to the wire as the way they did, people started to think about the sport differently. You know, there were several players that started to become popularized because of that tournament. Brad Friedel, Claudio Reyna, Brian McBride, Tony Santa, Clint Mathis, they all had big tournaments. But as Berhalter mentioned, the main headliners for the U.S. were a pair of youngsters, Donovan and Beasley. Looking over, I was, you know, I think I just turned 20, turned 20 on the plane. And I look over and I'm starting and I see Figo. I see Rui Costa, 
you know, Conceição. Like I see these guys that, and that was their golden generation, you know, in Portugal, the first game, and I'm playing against them, and I had a fanboy moment for two seconds, but then after that, it's it's, it's, it's go, let's let's play, you know. I forgot that I was playing in the World Cup, and you just and you play, you know, and I think that will. For me personally, my mentality, I'm sure Landon can, you know, say the same, which I didn't care who I was playing against. Yeah, I know who it, who it is, but you don't think about it when you're on the field and you're playing at that age. You know, Sam, that kind of fearlessness that DeMarcus Beasley was talking about, that's probably going to play a role in this upcoming World Cup. The idea that young players don't even know enough to be scared by big moments, that's the advantage of youth in your national team. This team that we'll see in Qatar is, of course, full of youth. They'll be the youngest team in Qatar by a wide margin. But we'll talk more about that later. Let's go back to the aughts and the success in Korea. What Landon and Demarcus Beasley's success meant for the national team. Essentially, it was the beginning of that era of American soccer, one that had a good amount of hype and excitement around them because of the young players that were coming through behind Donovan and behind Beasley, some of whom might have been older than those two. But that kind of buttressed this national team into something that had real expectations around it for the first time. Qualifying campaign for 2006 played a massive role in that too. The U.S. had a relatively easy time of it getting through CONCACAF. They racked up some good results. You mentioned some of the other players, guys like Oguchi Onyewu at that point was doing well in Europe. Bobby Convy was considered a huge young talent. He would start for the U.S. in 2006. And they entered that tournament in Germany, ranked number four in the world in the FIFA rankings. This was an all-time high for the U.S. in that system. It was something that was unheard of. And I remember, Paul, getting a Sports Illustrated in my mailbox and it had Beasley and Donovan, and I think on Yewu and Convy on the cover. And that was like a big deal for teenage me. And I'm getting psyched for this tournament with my buddies, my high school soccer teammates. And I'm thinking, okay, yeah, this is a tough group. You got Czech Republic, had some amazing players, Pavel Nedved. You have Italy, you have Ghana, but the U.S. still get through. They got through in 2002. They made a good run. The expectation in my naive brain was that they would go farther. They would maybe get not just do a quarter, but make it to a semi and maybe make a real run at this tournament. It didn't really work out like that. No, the U.S. got blown out 3-0 in the opener against the Czech Republic. They drew Italy 1-1 in just a crazy game. And needing a win to have any shot of going through, they lost 2-1 to Ghana. Landon Donovan in particular had a miserable tournament, falling far short of the expectations that were laid upon him before the tournament. In 06, it was a World Cup that was disappointing. It was a World Cup that I've heard Landon say is that, you know, he felt that he had to, you know, be the man. And he, you know, he he failed in that regard because he, you know, he didn't perform like he would would have liked. And as a team, we, we it was disappointing. We didn't do well. You know, we had a lot of, like you said, expectations. When you say the difference between having expectations and, and not, you know, I don't think that affected us. We didn't play well. I think we had a, a very good group. You know, we were united, but for whatever reason, it, it just didn't it didn't come together in, in 06. You know, I kicked myself as well because I was one of the guys that, you know, a lot of people were counting on to, to do, you know, to do well after the 02 success we had. And obviously coming into that World Cup, being fourth, qualifying, all those things that we had a really good run. And just to not perform up to our capabilities and was disappointing. Sam, it was around this time that I started working professionally in journalism and started covering the U.S. men's national team day in and day out. Uh, They had some rebuilding to do, and it was 
Bob Bradley, the assistant coach under Bruce Arena, who took over the national team program. And of course, in 2009, went on that fantastic run in the Confederations Cup, where they beat the unbeatable Spain team and went on to take a 2-0 lead against Brazil in the final before losing 3-2. That team had to reestablish the U.S. as a team that was capable of getting those types of results on the world stage. And I actually remember the year after that Confederations Cup run being at Princeton when Landon Donovan sat in front of the media and talked about the pressure he had faced in 2006, the expectations that were put on his shoulder, how much he struggled with that, and how much he looked at 2010 as an opportunity to redeem himself, but partly just by understanding his own role in the group. It's interesting because these 2002, 2006, 2010 teams have a lot of very similar parallels to the 2022 team that we are covering now. And Landon Donovan, especially with Christian Pulisic, carrying that type of pressure and that type of expectation. We've seen Christian Pulisic talk about his struggles to deal with that spotlight. And we've heard U.S. men's national team members talk about how Christian is learning to simply be a part of the group and not feel like he has to carry the team. I think that's important to remember in the context of what would happen in 2010 That group, again, one that had come off of the expectations of being able to perform in a tournament by getting to that final against Brazil, advanced out of its group in 2010. It tied both England and Slovenia and got one of the most important goals in U.S. men's national team history from Donovan. That goal, of course, came against Algeria in the dying moments of that game. Anyone who's familiar with soccer or the U.S. men's national team, anyone who's a sports fan, anyone who was alive in the United States in the summer of 2010 probably remembers what I'm talking about. Tim Howard threw it out to Donovan. He races up the field. The U.S. needs a goal to get through. Clint Dempsey gets on the end of a ball. Shot saved, but Donovan follows up. And Donovan has scored! Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA! Certainly through! Oh, it's incredible! Paul, I, I still, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes if I need to get a little juiced up, if I need to get a smile on my face, I still go back and watch this YouTube compilation video. It's probably five or six minutes long of fans all across the country celebrating that goal. It was an incredible moment for U.S. soccer. And then it fell short in the very next match against Ghana, again, in the knockout rounds. Well, what's interesting, Sam, is for us, 2002 was the team that inspired us as soccer fans. That was our first real memories of a national team. I remember going to the World Cup in 94, but I was nine years old. That 2002 team was the team that I got behind and really rooted for. When we talk to players on this 2022 U.S. men's national team and you ask them what is the memory that they have of the men's national team when they were growing up, they talk about the landing goal. That was the moment that inspired a new generation of American soccer players, including many of the players that we're going to be watching play in Qatar. And even despite that disappointment of what happened against Ghana, I think it did reinvigorate the energy around the team. Coming off of that tournament, there was again belief that this is a team that could make you excited, that could do something special on the world stage, that could be a part of the World Cup in a way that Like I said before, the 2002 team did for us. Of course, after that World Cup a few years later, Bob Bradley was out, Jurgen Klinsmann came in, and he took over a 2014 team that went to Brazil with, I don't think many huge expectations around them, but I think still did its job. It got out of the group, it advanced to the knockout, and Tim Howard put in one of the most special performances in U.S. men's national team history, stand on his head game, where he kept the U.S. in it against Belgium, up until extra time. You can't talk about that game without at least mentioning the Chris Wondolowski miss. And it eventually ended with a 2-1 Belgium win. And that is how we get set up to the crucial three-year stretch that would end in Cuba, Sam. 
Yeah. And at that point, Paul, you know, getting out of a group that was tough, that included Ghana again, as well as Germany and Portugal, that was an achievement. Taking Belgium to the brink, even in a game that they got dominated in, was respectable. And it felt like the U.S. was still a program that was solid and, if anything, trending upward. That was not the case. You know, it's a a very fine line. Going into the Trinidad game, I think everybody was just a little bit too comfortable. Coming up, we'll focus on America's lost generation and its impact on the U.S. men's national team over the last decade. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Paul, there's a lot of talk in American soccer communities about something called the lost generation. That's the generation starting with the kids born the year I was born. I apologize, America. In 1990 and continuing on for 1996, those players should have been in their primes in 2018 in the World Cup in Russia. And they just didn't emerge. There were no big players really in that generation outside of a couple that might be on this team in Qatar. DeAndre Yedlin kind of being the main one there. And that gap between the players that carried the group in 2010 and 2014 and the players that are a big part of the team and the leading lights in 2022 of having basically no major players in that age range killed the U.S. What hurts this team is that lost generation, it seems like. You don't have like 28, 29-year-olds, veteran players that are playing at big clubs with World Cup experience. Our colleague at The Athletic, Chris Camrani, spoke to Clint Dempsey while he was raking leaves outside of his home in North Carolina about the importance of that lost generation and how it might even impact the U.S. group that goes to Qatar. You're relying on players who are 22, 23 years old to be your leaders, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just it's just a lot put on them. You know, that's the direction that uh, Burhalter wanted it to, to go as well um, in terms of the, the team that he selects, but to Burhalter's defense. It's not like there's a ton of players who are that meet that criteria of, of, of playing big clubs and, and doing well when you've had what three Olympics in a row that we haven't qualified for. Well, I think, you know, to go back a little bit, we should talk about some of the problems that happened with that lost generation, some of the hints that this was to come. This was the beginning of the U.S. struggling to get out of Olympic qualifying, to to get to the Olympic Games. Those tournaments, of course, for the Olympics are held with teams made up of players only 23 years of age or younger. So it's really a chance to develop those young players, that next generation of players that you want to slowly kind of integrate into your senior squad. And the U.S. wasn't qualifying. It was a hint of what was to come. Essentially, Jurgen Klinsmann decided to try to get through the 2018 cycle, leaning on that same generation of players who had been a part of those teams in 2010 and 2014. Now, some of those guys were top players. Clint Dempsey was involved 
Demarcus Beasley came back later in the cycle. Landon Donovan was out of the picture, but Josie Altidore, who had played a role in 2014, was starting up top. We saw names with which we were familiar, and that wasn't a good thing, ultimately. What it meant was that the U.S. was a little bit older, a little bit slower, and maybe a little bit complacent. The first two games of that hexagonal, the final round of qualification in CONCACAF, started with losses under Jurgen Klinsmann at home to Mexico and on the road in a massive loss to Costa Rica, an embarrassing loss. And that would prove to be the end for Jurgen Klinsmann, a change that many had been calling for beforehand, but took a little bit too long to occur, at least in the opinion of this journalist. And it was Bruce Arena who was hired to try to save the cycle. He wasn't able to do so, Sam. At first, he came in, he got some good results. But there was another game against Costa Rica, a familiar foe in this conversation, at Red Bull Arena, infamous for U.S. supporters. Costa Rican fans bought up a lot of tickets, probably took up 33% of that 25,000-seat venue, and they were really loud. Why were they so loud? Because Costa Rica was winning. They would go on to win that game. That put the U.S. in a really difficult place in qualifying where they needed some results in the final window against Panama and at Trinidad and Tobago. The game against Panama, Paul, in Orlando, you were there for that. It went pretty well. It was an incredible performance, very similar, actually, to the penultimate game of this qualification cycle. The U.S. was dominant from start to finish. The crowd in Orlando was in it the entire time. And the U.S. won and won in such convincing fashion that there was almost no doubt of what was going to happen in Trinidad. Remember, that U.S. team didn't even need a win to qualify. They just needed a draw. And so... For many, it was just assumed that that was going to happen. I remember sitting in the press conference after the game, and I remember Bruce Arena kind of sitting back in his chair with this confidence, this air of like, you guys have been doubting that we were going to get this done. You guys have been doubting me and my ability to take this team back to the World Cup. It was not even a question that the U.S. had done enough to get to the World Cup in Russia. And many believe they had, except for... They hadn't. They still needed a result, and they still needed things to go their way in CONCACAF if they weren't going to get a result. And that night, that is not what happened. And when you talk to people about going into that game, about what went wrong in the cycle, there's one word that keeps coming up. And Greg Berhalter went directly to that word when we spoke to him. Complacency. I think I think that's the number one thing. Just we, we thought that we were owed it. We just took for granted that, you know, we're going to stay separated from each and every team. We're going to qualify no problem. But, you know, Major League Soccer really helped give opportunities to a lot of players in Central America that they wouldn't otherwise have this opportunity. And we got them better. We trained them better. They got more competitive games. They can become more comfortable with the United States. And all of a sudden playing in the United States isn't a big deal anymore. So we have to continue to grow. And that's like everything. You know, if you're standing still, you're losing ground basically, right? Because the competition's getting better. And and that's what we, I think we failed to recognize. The ultimate failure came in Cuba, Trinidad on October 10th, 2017. Beasley, who was looking to make a record fifth appearance at a World Cup, wasn't on the field that fateful night, but watched from the bench. You know, I can't even talk about it still. You know, it's tough to, to speak about. We failed, simple, we failed. After that dominant result against Panama, all the U.S. needed was a draw against already eliminated last place Trinidad to guarantee a place in Russia. They could have even gotten there with a loss had results elsewhere broken the right way. That created a relaxed vibe heading into the final match. It was too relaxed as it would turn out. You know, it's a a very fine line. Going into the Trinidad game, I think everybody was just a little bit too comfortable. 
DeAndre Yedlin, who made a late push as a 20-year-old to make the 2014 World Cup team in Brazil and will likely be the only U.S. player in Qatar with prior experience at a World Cup, described the mood of the team heading into the game. Too relaxed, kind of. Obviously, you know, we're, oh, we're playing Trinidad. We're gonna, it's an automatic win, da 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 um, Or we'll get whatever result we need and, you know, then it'll be easy. And it's, I think it's one of those things where, you know, we had made the World Cup in so many previous years before that it was almost expected that we were going to make it. Yeah, again, I think we were just a little bit too relaxed and a little bit too comfortable going into that game. The U.S. went down one nothing after a brutal own goal from Omar Gonzalez in the 17th minute. And then Trinidad made it 2 nothing off a wonder goal later in the first half. During the game, like it just seemed like everything was going wrong for us and right for them. Long distance blast, and it's Alvin Jones! One for the legend books! Oh my! You know, I remember two goals that went in for them were kind of freakish goals. So it's kind of one of those days where it's like, okay, something strange is happening. And then it's just really about trying to fight through it, but unfortunately, you know, we weren't able to get the result that we needed. Christian Pulisic clawed one back for the U.S. early in the second half, and Clint Dempsey, who had come off the bench, later hit the post, but the U.S. couldn't find an equalizer. Coupled with a controversial goal for Panama that shouldn't have counted, the ball never crossed the line. The result knocked the U.S. out of Russia. They finished fifth out of six teams in the final round of CONCACAF qualifying, not even good enough to qualify for the Intercontinental Playoff for a last-ditch spot at the World Cup. It was a very dark time in, in U.S. soccer's history. You know, not making the World Cup was a blow for U.S. soccer, for the country, for fans, for all the players that were involved and the staff that was there. Still a tough pill to swallow that we didn't we didn't go to, to Russia in 18. Sam, I remember watching that night and seeing the events unfold, the surreal nature of that game. I had written a story in the days leading up to that qualifier in Trinidad, where I spoke to members of the U.S. team that had qualified back in 1990, that first team that we talked about. It was a goal in Trinidad that sent the U.S. through. And when you spoke to people who were involved in that game, who had been involved in the program, and you brought up the possibility of not going to the World Cup, none of them even wanted to talk about it. It's not a possibility. I don't even want to waste time thinking about it. The idea that the U.S. was not going to go to a World Cup after having been a part of every World Cup since 1990 was unfathomable. That wasn't just the team or ex-players thinking that. Everyone thought that. I thought that to the point where, Paul, I started watching that game, which wasn't even available really on TV in the US. You had to like find some weird stream. I can't remember exactly how it worked. But I went to Ikea from my home in Chicago. I drove out to Schaumburg, Illinois to buy, I don't know, a dresser. And I missed the first 10 minutes of the match because it took too long to get back fighting through rush hour traffic. <laughs> I wasn't covering the team at that time, so it wasn't like I was writing off of the game, but I, I flipped it on and basically immediately after the U.S. went down a goal, things start to go the wrong way, the tension starts to build, and at a certain point, you're just like, oh my God, they're not going to make it. And I remember that night, sources around MLS from around American soccer, my friends... My phone was blowing up nonstop and I was sitting in my bedroom putting together this crappy Ikea dresser and just like in a rage, just like what just happened. This should have never even been possible to finish outside of the top four in CONCACAF. It was completely unthinkable. 
And Sam, we talked previously about the lost generation, and no doubt that played a huge role in the failure of that team in 2017 in Trinidad, but it spoke to larger problems within the organization. Decisions were being made by people who had no background in soccer, that were hiring coaches. There were issues with the amount of power that was given to Jurgen Klinsmann. When he was at U.S. Soccer, he was both the coach who was supposed to be advocating and proactive for the current generation and also the technical director who was supposed to be thinking about the future of the program and the development of the national team for generations down the road. And that created problems within the federation as well. What happened that night in Cuba forced a complete reorganization, a complete rethinking of the structure of U.S. soccer. It created a wave of change that went beyond just the team that we see take the field now, but into U.S. soccer, the administrative structure of the governance of this team and of the sport in this country. We saw changes at the top of U.S. soccer. Sunil Gulati was replaced. The executive director, CEO of U.S. soccer, changed for the first time in decades. U.S. Soccer hired a sporting director for the first time, Ernie Stewart. And of course, Bruce Arena resigned, opening the door for a U.S. Soccer coaching hire. That would become Greg Berhalter, but not for another year plus. There was a whole year of an interim manager, Dave Sarakin. And I think that speaks to just how much of a shock that result was, that U.S. Soccer wasn't ready for the fallout that would come. And and the reverberations of failing to make the World Cup were felt up and down the sport. It would be an important moment for the Federation, not just because obviously the repercussions that came commercially to the sport or the backlash that happened from the fans, but for the first time, I think it caused real introspection over whether or not U.S. soccer was doing things right. And that, of course, would lead to decisions that we've seen take place over the last four years and the formation of a team that some hope will be a new start for what American soccer is considered around the world. And to that point, Paul, if there was any silver lining that came out of that disastrous night in Trinidad, it was that it kick-started this next generation of U.S. players that will take the team to Qatar. Only positive that I can take out of that dark period in U.S. soccer's history is that it gave us a chance to see the Christian Pulisic, Gio Reynas, the Brendan Aronsons and all these guys that, you know, um, are playing Musa and all these guys. That wouldn't have happened. Those guys might have not been on that team at that point, at that time. Because it was a clean slate. After 18, we felt the, all the old guard was out. Everybody, every single person. You know, it, it was a, a good change. It was the beginning of the remaking of the national team. Over the next four episodes of this podcast, we'll dive into the details of how that team was born, how it's grown, how it qualified for Qatar, and what the expectations will be at the World Cup. I'm Sam Stasekul. I'm Paul Tenorio. And this was episode one of From Cuba to Qatar, remaking the U.S. men's national team. The producer of From Cuba to Qatar, remaking the U.S. men's national team, is Michael Zimmerman. The executive producers are John Hayes and Mike Smeltz. The creators of the series are Paul Tenorio and Sam Stasekul. Special thanks to Chris Kramrani. For behind-the-scenes bonus episodes, become a subscriber of The Athletic or become a member of The Athletic's Audio Plus subscription service on Apple Podcasts. And for much more about the U.S. men's national team and the rest of the teams at the World Cup this year, keep it right here on The Athletic Soccer Show.